online. We're going to be in Acts chapter 20 this morning, but we're going to start with a word of prayer. So Tom, would you please lead us? Father, good morning. Thank you for this day. It's wonderful to see the sunshine this morning, even with the, the, the coldness outside. Thank you for your grace in our lives and uh, just all the work that you're doing in our lives that's unseen and your Holy Spirit that's working on us. Thank you for this great book that you've given us and inspired for us to teach us and correct us and encourage us and ultimately to show us our, our sin and our need for a Savior. And we thank you for your Son in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so by way of review from last week, um, what are some verses that teach us that all believers have the Holy Spirit. Remember, kind of top three that make it clear that even though there were some transitional things happening in Acts, now that kind of things are set, all believers in Christ have the Holy Spirit. Do I remember any of those? Well, let's review them. Let's go to Romans 8, verse 9. Romans 8, verse 9. Would somebody read that, please? However, you're not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. Indeed, the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to you. Okay, so you cannot be, even be a Christian without the Holy Spirit. Somebody read 1 Corinthians 6, 19. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 19. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. Thank you. And last, Ephesians 1, 13. Ephesians 1, verse 13. <coughs> In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, Having believed, you were sealed with him. You were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit. So any questions on the believer's relationship to the Holy Spirit? So that was sort of a question in Acts 19 as far as here's some people that are called disciples, don't have the Spirit. What's going on with that? And these verses, we settle it for us as far as at least now. <laughs> we don't have to worry about that. What became of the church in Ephesus after Paul left, remember, he was there two years. So, anybody know who took over for Paul in Ephesus as the pastor? Timothy. Timothy, yes, we find that out in First Timothy. And then, what happens about thirty years later? So, you have Paul for two years, at least according to tradition, teaching five hours a day. We think we did the math. It was like 2,500 hours of hearing the Apostle Paul teach the Word of God. Uh, so a well-taught church. And then Timothy, obviously, would be a great pastor for them. What happens in the next generation? Anybody know? 
they lose their first love? They did. So let's go to Revelation 2. Revelation 2. And would somebody read verses 1 through 4, please? To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance, and that you cannot tolerate evil men. And you put to the test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not, and you found them to be false. And you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake, and have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have lost your first love. Okay, so still has a lot of good things going for it as a church. A lot of things that Jesus commends that they're doing well, but <laughs> they lost their first love. So that get, kind of negates all those other positive things. <coughs> you know, that's the main thing is do we love the Lord? And that's cooled at least uh, in these believers who were so well taught. So just maybe a gentle reminder to us, doesn't matter how much we know, um, it's good to know, keep growing, but make sure... The love doesn't cool in how much you're learning. Does that make sense? Okay. What kind of impact was Christianity making in the city of Ephesus while Paul was there? people are turning away from idols to turn to Christ, and it's, it's actually creating an economic problem, which created a riot, <laughs> which ended up being settled, and Christianity being seen not as harmful to civil order, which was a plus, um, but did get exciting there for a while, <laughs> as far as uh, people uh, getting upset that Christianity was making that kind of impact, and I shared the example of the Welsh Revival of 1904-1905 where taverns were closing because people were coming to Christ didn't need to go to the bar anymore. They found something much more satisfying. So, something to aspire for. It's like, Lord, we want to make that kind of impact that it's noticeable. So, any comments or questions on what we saw in Acts 19? Okay, let's go to 20. Somebody read the first six verses of chapter 20 of Acts. After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. When he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. There he spent three months, and when a plot was made against him by the Jews as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. So Peter of Berea, the son of Pyrrhus from Berea, accompanied him, and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus, and Gaius of Derby, and Timothy, and the Asians, Tychicus, 
and Trophimus. <coughs> Those went on ahead, these went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days we came to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. Okay, thank you. And good job navigating all those names. That was <laughs> impressive. Um, and the key of names, especially Old Testament names, is just pronounce it with confidence, and everybody else will go, oh, that's how you pronounce it. Because <laughs> right? we just don't you know. my secret there. Yeah, oh, yeah. The gig's up. So the main thing I get out of those verses is, what is Paul spending his time doing with the disciples? He sends for them in order to do what? He encourages them. Yeah. He could have just left. He knows he's taking a trip, but he, he deliberately sends for the disciples because he wants to encourage them or exhort them before he leaves. So just a pattern we keep seeing. He wants to strengthen the disciples. He wants to strengthen their faith. He wants to encourage them. And again, we're called as believers to do that for one another, encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today. Okay, let's do 7 through 12 of Acts 20. On the first day of the week, we came together to break bread. Paul spoke to the people, and because he intended to leave the next day, kept on talking until midnight. There were many lamps in the upstairs room where they were meeting. Seated in the window was a young man named Eutychus, who was sinking into a deep sleep as Paul talked on and on. <coughs> when he was sound asleep, he fell to the ground from the third story and was picked up dead. Paul went down, threw himself on the young man, and put his arms around him. Don't be alarmed, he said. He's alive. Then he went upstairs again and broke bread and ate. <coughs> After talking until uh, daylight, he left. The people took the young man home alive and were greatly comforted. So how long did this Sunday evening service last? 24 hours. <laughs> yeah, probably started at sundown. So, cause, so it's the first day of the week, so it's Sunday. And... Two-day weekends are a relatively modern phenomena, so people work six days, they had Saturday off for the Sabbath, but Sunday's a work day, so people worked, but at sunset they could come to this gathering, and so it went at least from sunset to midnight, there's this rather scary interruption, and then they start over and go till daybreak. That's, a, that's an all-nighter uh, of a Sunday night service. Um, so what does that say about the disciples in Troas? <coughs> They're hungry. That is exactly the phrase I use. They're hungry. Um, and I had a flashback years ago. You won't even know who this is anymore, but long since gone. But there was a guy who had a little notebook he kept in his pocket, and he would write down how long each message was. <laughs> like how many minutes. So I don't think he'd do well at Troas. <laughs> it's like, here's hour one, here's hour two, and, oh, it's midnight, okay, we're done, right? No, we're going to keep going after this guy comes back to life. Um, so I just think it's an example, it's not a command, but it's certainly a, a worthy example of hunger. And, um, you know, even just in, in traveling to other countries, uh, I'm thinking specifically of Russia, it's like... Um, they have three messages in the morning service. 
and they're each an hour. Um, and I wasn't prepared for that. You know, it's like, you know, do you want me to go a little shorter since there's already two before me? No. <laughs> Give us an hour. So three hours, that's short compared to this service in Troas, but that's hungry. Um, instead of, oh man, it's been 20 minutes, let's go. <laughs> let's get this over with. So anyway, um, just something to think about. And, and it's worth pointing out too, why did poor Eutychus go to sleep? Okay, it's about oxygen. It's not because Paul preached too long or because Eutychus doesn't care about the Bible. And you see both those shots taken uh, when you read about this story. It's like, no. <laughs> and if you ever, I remember a, a Christmas party we went to as a church family. And a lot of people in one room and a lot of candles. And I, I remembered this passage. It's like, I could see what happened to Eutychus. It's getting really hard to breathe in here. And so, so don't be too hard on Eutychus, and don't scold Paul for going so long. Um, it's just physics. If you don't have enough oxygen, you might conk out and don't sit next to the window, <laughs> if that's the case. Right. <laughs> so, let's read uh, t- chapter 20, 13 through 16. to the ship set sail for Athos, intending from there to take Paul on board, for so he had arranged it, intending himself to go by land. And when he met us at Athos, we took him on board and came to Mytilene. Sailing from there, we arrived the following day opposite Chios, and the next day we crossed over to Samos, and the day following we came to Miletus. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he would not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hurrying to be in Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. So who's the we in these verses? So it's, it's Luke. So Luke is the author of Acts, and he's actually part of Acts, starting here. You know, there's a lot of we sections, and so he just sort of inserted himself in the narrative because he's part of these trips. Okay? Um, the rest of it's just <clears throat> details about travel. Um, 17 to 21. Somebody read those verses, please. Now, from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time, from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears, and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable, and teaching you in the public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. So this was one of the verses we used when we were transitioning to having elders, which we did not have. Most Baptist churches in America in the last 200 years haven't had elders. They have deacons and kind of a different set. And so we said, okay, who would we send? Paul said, send the elders. Who do we send? We don't have any of those. Or, um, you know, in James 5, it talks about if anyone's sick, let them call for the elders. Like, who do we send? So... 
somebody sick. So, so those are the kind of texts that said we're, we're not in line with how the New Testament describes the setup of the church, and we want to conform to that. So uh, Acts 14.23 talks about there were elders in every church. So that's what we tried to line up with. Um, how does Paul describe his two years that he spent in Ephesus? What's he been doing? He says he served the Lord. Okay. So it's also not just serving the church at Ephesus, he's serving the Lord. What else? So it wasn't all fun and games. What else? He proclaimed the gospel for two years. Okay, and how does he summarize the gospel? Okay, good, both. Repentance or God, faith in Christ. So repentance is what, remember? Turning, turning around 180 degree, you're going away from God towards sin, turn back to God away from sin. Uh, and faith in Christ is putting our trust in Christ alone for salvation. So in addition to that basic gospel message, what else did he spend time talking about? the hardships with the tears and the trials, right? Right. So so he's teaching the basic message. You need to repent. You need to believe. And I didn't shrink back from teaching you anything that was profitable. So why would you shrink back or be tempted to shrink back from teaching something profitable? He's going to use the word shrink back later in chapter 20 as well. So what would be the forces at work that you would be thinking about maybe shrinking back from talking about something profitable. The trials from the plots of the Jews. Yeah, that would maybe make you think twice if you're going to cover some of those topics. Might get some Jews mad. Okay. So he, his goal is, I want to be profitable for you. I, I spent two years teaching you the gospel and teaching you Things that were profitable for your souls to grow. Um, any questions on those verses? Okay, let's go to 22 through 27. And now behold, bound in spirit, I am on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions await me. But I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself, so that I may finish my course and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify 
solemnly, solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. Is it 27? Yes, please. And now behold, I know that all of you among whom I went about preaching the kingdom will see my face no more. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. Thank you. So what does Paul already know about what his future will be like? What's waiting for him? Prison, yeah, bonds. Um, doesn't sound like a real optimistic time. Afflictions, so not just a cheery, uh, your best life now is coming kind of prospect. And, and what is his attitude, even though that's what's coming? not the most important thing here, which is so different than our flesh, that our life is very important to us, and he's saying, that's okay, I don't care what happens to me, because why? Why, why does he not care that much about his life? What's he mostly caring about? He's to finish his ministry and testify to the gospel. Right, good, and he kind of talks about it in terms of finishing a race or finishing a course. Um, so let's look at a couple of verses uh, about that Hebrews 12.1. Hebrews 12.1, it's not just Paul that has a race to be run. We all do. Hebrews Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Okay, so there's that race imagery. Remember, Paul uses that in 1 Corinthians 9 as well. He says, uh, run in such a way as to win. Now, think of the Olympians. They, they sacrifice, they discipline themselves to get just a wreath in those days of celery or um, the other stuff they made the wreaths out of. Didn't last long. Something like that. But, you know, but we're, we're having something, we have an imperishable crown that we're running for. So run so as to win. And then 2 Timothy 4, 7. 2 Timothy 4, verse 7. Somebody read that. because he knows it's just about over, he can look back and say, I did finish the race. So in Acts 20, he's saying, I want to finish the race, and I don't care what happens to me as long as I do. And now, before he's going to get his head chopped off, he says, I have. I finished it. I completed it. I made it all the way around the track. And Kyle, do you, this is a blast from the past, but you used to send an email to the College and Career Group uh, each week, and it was based on that verse. Do you remember how you said it? 
Maybe if I start, you can help me. So basically it was, in order to be able to say these words at the end of our life, we need to be able to say them at the end of this week. Does that ring a bell? I'll take your word for it. It was even better than that. But you get the point? Um, so here's one way to think about it. Um, if you're like me, you really brush your teeth well right before you go to the dentist, right? <laughs> I mean, you don't want to go with bad breath. Right? You don't want to go with gunk in your teeth. You really want to look good right before you go to the dentist. Well, guess what? If you've been neglecting your teeth for the last six months since you went to the dentist, that last couple minutes before isn't going to really undo it. And in a similar way, it's like, oh, the doctor gave me two weeks to live. I'm really going to get serious about running this race. If you haven't been running the race for the last 20 years, that's not really finishing the race well. So we need to run the race well this week, and next week, and the week after that, until it is our last week and our last day, and then can say, I finished the race. Does that make sense? So don't just procrastinate and put this off like, yeah, that's for old people. <coughs> this is right now. Run the race well now. Run the race to win now. So that you can say that later. It doesn't work opposite. You get to that point and go, oh, I wish I would have. Can't get it back. So any questions or comments on that? Why is Paul innocent of all men's blood? Where did that come from? And why is he innocent? Is that a reference to like Ezekiel or Isaiah? It is, Ezekiel, yeah. So tell us about that, John. Uh, God told Ezekiel that if he was, he was told to proclaim the gospel, basically, right? So if he did it and men died in their sins, he would be called, oh, I forgot how it's worded, their blood would be on his head, but if he warned them and they still didn't repent, right. he was exactly. not guilty. Yep, yep, so that's the imagery Paul's borrowing for, from, and I remember hearing the speaker, I think it was um, Jay Kessler, who used to be with uh, Youth for Christ for many years, he talked about visiting a church, and there were, you know how kids have like paint handprints on walls or they, there were red handprints all over the church as a reminder of the passage in Ezekiel, blood on your hands. It's like, get out there and share the gospel, otherwise you'll have blood on your hands. Which is not maybe the ideal way to motivate people to share Christ. <laughs> Every week in every shirt, oh, there's those bloody hands. You know, um, there's better motivations than that. But Paul's saying, I'm, I have warned people so I'm free, I'm innocent of any man's blood on my account. I have a question about that, though. I've come across that a couple of times. So, obviously, you know, Christians, you don't lose your salvation, right? So, what does it mean the blood will be on? I mean, it's not like if we didn't proclaim the gospel to um, our neighbor down the street and he died, it's like, well, he wanted to help because you didn't. I mean, I've been told that in other churches. Yeah, I've been told that too. Right, so. but that's not. I mean, the elect of the elect from eternity past, so that's what it's set. So what does it mean that their blood will be on your hands? I'm not sure what to do with that passage in Ezekiel for us now. Um, 
I mean, Paul still thought it was a category, you know, post-cross to, to talk that way. I'm not 100% sure, to be honest, rather than making something up. Um, but again, there, there's better and higher motivations to share Christ than just fear of yeah, blood on my hands. Right. Would that fall into the category of the servants that have the, the talents or the money given to them by their master, and he comes back and, and wants to know what the return, what the investment that they have done um, with that would be? And, you know, when, when you meet the board and uh, he says, you know, well done, hopefully well done, good and faithful servant, what, what has been the investment, what has been, how have we used the opportunities, the relationships uh, that he has placed us in that maybe no other person in our church or, or Christian would run into those people. Okay, good. Yeah, we've, we've been entrusted with gifts, we've been entrusted with the gospel, we've been, been entrusted with opportunities, and there is an accounting of what we've done with our stewardship of all mm-hmm. those things. Um, so, yeah, so I think there will be accounting, okay, you were given the gospel. You were called to share it with others. How did how did you carry out your stewardship? Were you faithful in that? Not that any of us can say I took a hundred percent of the shots I should have taken in sharing Christ. Right? I mean, has anybody here said I never missed a beat? Like every time I had an opportunity, no fail. Just no. We all have, right? Like oh, that family gathering and that relative and oh, we were so close and I zipped it up because I didn't want it to get awkward. We've all done that, uh, or with a coworker, or, or a friend, or a neighbor, or whoever. So, you know, thank you again. It's not like if you haven't done it perfectly, you're doomed. Um, but we are called to do it. So, so stay out of both ditches. Not do it, or you're going to hell. And not don't worry if you do or not. It's no big deal. So somewhere in between those two ditches is what we want to do. Mark. Oh, I'm sorry. Remind me of your name, please. Katie. Katie. Yeah. Um, Like the chosen, like God chooses who he wants with him. So if we miss an opportunity, maybe it wasn't our place to tell them. Yeah, or that somebody else will get that. Yeah, so, well said. Or even living your life. Yeah. Seeing, people seeing how you live your life because Christians are under a microscope, like at the workplace or... Yeah. So, yes, buy our life, and if we get opportunities, buy our lips, but not with the... So I had a, a guy come in after church one time and, and say, you didn't give an altar call today. Oh, no, I didn't. Well, what if somebody was walking across the street, right off here in front of the church, got hit by a truck, and died? They'd go to hell because you didn't give an altar call. I'm like... And I think that what I came back with... in was, isn't God any bigger than that? Like, if he really was hoping to save that person that it wasn't riding on me giving an altar call that day, um, God is bigger than that. He, he does, you know, bring people to himself. Uh, all the Father gives me will come to me, John 6, 7. So, so the pressure is not on us to get results or even take every opportunity we have the privilege of being co-workers with God to introduce people to Christ or to tell them about Christ, but He does the heavy lifting. <laughs> right. He's the one that has to change a heart 
to believe. We, we can't do that. Only God can do that. So that's a good point. Okay, he connects it to having not shrunk back, so there's that idea of shrinking back again, from the whole counsel or the whole purpose of God. Um, so there's kind of two ways to, to think of that. One is God's plan of salvation as revealed in the whole Bible. So the whole counsel of God, the whole, all of scriptures, everything God has said about salvation. And it often is applied, I think, in a secondary way of that as God's people, we need a balanced diet of everything in God's word. Um, so for example, as a new believer, I went to a church that only taught the the letters of Paul. It's like those are that's the Bible for this era, and the other stuff in the Bible, not so sure about. So that would not be preaching the whole counsel of God. It's like so I try by grace <laughs> um, to do a mixture of Old Testament and New Testament and narratives and prophets and poetic. And I, I, I try to give us a balanced diet by grace. Um, and, and not just, we're going to camp in Paul's letters from now till he comes back. <laughs> you know? And you're never going to hear any other parts of the Bible because that's where we're locked in. So I try to give you a variety. And of course, in your quiet times, hopefully you're getting a variety, whatever reading program you have or whatever you're making up to cover the Bible. You know, take samplings from the whole Bible and not just your favorite books. You know? Does that make sense? Questions. So the alternative of the whole counsel of God would be giving people what they want to hear, which Paul warns about in 2 Timothy 4. 2 Timothy 4, would somebody read verse 3? For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires. So the opposite of not shrinking back um, from giving everything the Bible says is, oh, I'm going to shrink back because this won't tickle their ears. This People won't go away going, oh, I love that message today. Wasn't that great? It's like, you know? So it's like, okay, I won't do that one then. We'll just, we'll just do the happy ones. Uh, we'll just do the positive, encouraging ones and neglect the whole counsel of God. And so... We don't want to go in that ditch. Any comments or questions on that? Okay, let's go to 28 through 32. Would somebody read those? Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease, night or day, to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Thank you. 
So what are some phrases Paul uses to describe the church? Flock. A flock. Remember Psalm 100, we are his people, the sheep of his pasture. A flock. What else does he call it? Church of God. Yeah. Isn't that an amazing phrase? Purchased with his own blood. Who ultimately makes a man an overseer? Holy Spirit. Good. What is the responsibility of elders or overseers? Okay, the phrase is shepherd the flock. So, from Psalm 23, your other knowledge of being shepherds, what kind of things do shepherds do for the flock? Okay, they lead, they provide for their needs as far as food and water, protect. and protect, right? So provide and protect will be the two main things. Why do elders need to protect the flock? They're prone to wander and stray. Right, and in this passage, what else is a threat? Wolves. Well, not, not even as nice wolves, savage wolves. Um, so I hope this is ringing a bell from last week. Because um, where are these wolves coming from? Among yourselves. So we're not talking about some cult leader out there. We don't have to worry about him because he's got, you know, he's crazy anyway. It's people within the church maybe teaching a Sunday school class or having a Bible study and saying, teaching you these things. So it's, it's, a, it's an inside job. And um, we saw that last week in 2 Peter 2.1, just to refresh your memory. False prophets also arose among the people just as they will also be false teachers among you. So, and then remember Matthew 7.15, um, wolves in Sheep's clothing. So they're wolves, same word Paul uses. They just pretend to look like sheep. You'll know them by their fruits, but they won't look like wolves. That'd be obvious if they look like wolves. They will look like sheep, but they're not. Um, what does it mean to commend? Commend in Acts 20. Maybe you have a different word. Thirty-two. Do you have commend, Kyle, on ESV? Yes. Okay. So, New American Standard and ESV have commend. What does that mean? Speak well. That's one sense of the word. You're right. It also means because I looked it up in the dictionary just to make sure. Um, commit or entrust to someone oh, for right. safekeeping. Commit or entrust to someone for safekeeping. So what does that say about the safety of God's flock? Put them in the hands of God? Yes! So the elders are to be on guard. The elders are to be on the alert. The elders are to protect the flock. And ultimately, God is the one who will protect the flock. <clears throat> it's been entrusted to him 
and the word of his grace is able to build them up instead of have them torn down. It comes down to keeping yourself in the word. Yeah. And trusting that God will keep you. Amen. Especially the second part. <laughs> um, yeah, we are kept. Yeah. Um, we are called to keep ourselves in the love of God and Jude, but the bottom line is, if God doesn't keep me, I'm a goner. Right. If God doesn't keep you, you're a goner. We are kept by the power of God unto salvation, First Peter 1, 5. All right. Any comments or questions on that? Okay, let's read 33 through 35. <coughs> Coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. So, what are we specifically told to remember? What did he say? It is more blessed to give than receive. Okay, good. What does blessed mean? Truly happy happy in the fullest sense of the word. Okay, so why is it a fight of faith to remember and believe that is true? Because we live in a fallen world. Okay. And we tend to doubt and fear. Okay, so we could put a little bit on the world. I think there's more going on than that. Our circumstances might show otherwise, and so we don't necessarily feel that because of our circumstances. Okay, okay. So, I think the fight of fate happens at the heart level whatever is going on in the fallen world or their circumstances is, I like to receive. I like to be on the receiving end of things. <coughs> and do I really believe that the Lord Jesus knows the path of true blessing? So just last week, uh, we had a funeral here. One of the ladies that was helping with that uh, was recruiting some help for that. And the way she described it was, it's an opportunity to be blessed. Just right out of Acts 35. It's not just do it because we need more warm bodies. It's do you want to be part of a blessing? Do you want to experience another dose of true and lasting happiness in the fullest sense of the word from Jesus himself? Because he made a promise that people that give, serve, instead of just getting and being served, are the ones who are really the happy people. Do you want to get in on that? So I love how the Bible motivates us. It doesn't say, do it. Just do it. Come on, people. Get with the program. It says, do you want to be blessed? Do you want to be happy? Trust me. It's really more happiness to give than receive, to serve than to be served. And so that's a fight of faith. Do I really believe Jesus or not? And some days we do. Some days we don't. So any comments or questions on that, including any testimonies of your experience of Acts 2035. 
tasted it. Okay, I'll share two just to help reinforce the point. One is the first time I ever really fought that fight of faith was because that verse was in there for, you know, since Paul wrote it, or Luke wrote it in the first century, but I heard Dr. John Piper preach on this as part of Christian hedonism and, you know, that there's more joy in giving. So I'm a, I like to go to bed early, I, I shut down, I'm getting ready for bed, and the phone rings, and it's Mercy Hospital, and there's a guy there from Des Moines, and he wanted a Baptist pastor to come up, because uh, his kid <coughs> got pulled out of the pool, and um, could I come? Well, there was a little fight of faith going on there. It's like, you know, could this wait till morning? <laughs> I'm tired. I wanted to call it a day. And I had a, a nice long drive from next door to Mary, uh, Mary at that time, to pray, okay, God, you said it's more blessed to give than receive. I'm really not there. <laughs> I'm tired. I'm not feeling any particular joy about this. I feel a little put out right now. Show me this is true. I prayed. God, show me. I wasn't there yet. I had this incredible visit at the hospital, and I guess what the drive home was like. I was feeling very joyful. God showed me that verse is true. And... At a much lesser level, but you know, there's some nights at Awana, especially now that it's winter, it's like, I get home, eat supper, it's cold out, it's like, okay, <laughs> help me to believe there's more joy to go to Awana tonight and serve those kids than there is staying home and staying warm and vegging tonight to fight faith, which is really going to give me more happiness. So God isn't opposed to us seeking happiness, he just says seek it where it's to be found. And they'll tell us where it's found. Giving, not receiving. So, any closing thoughts or questions before we wrap it up? I feel like happiness is circumstantial. Right, that's the way we typically... Joy is... I mean, you can have joy and still be grieving for something. There's a phrase in 2 Corinthians 6, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing. The sorrowful tells us it's not just happy, chipper, you know, life's so good. There's sorrow, it's real, there's grief, and still rejoicing. So it tells us it's something deeper than just having a good day. There's something happening inside. Consider it all joy. Yeah, James 1. Trials are not joyful in themselves. In fact, Hebrews says they're not joyful, or they're not pleasant, but painful. But there is a, a joy in what God produces through them. Right. Well, 36 through 38 are just a tearful goodbye of Paul with these elders. They weep and embrace and kiss, and he leaves on the ship. And that's the end of that stage of Acts. And now he's going to take another trip, which Lord will we'll get next week. So let's close in prayer. And Kyle, would you lead us? Dear Lord, I thank you for our time this morning in your word. We 
hold counsel of your word to seek the blessing that there is in giving serving and uh, we know that you are faithful to provide that Lord we ask your blessing on the time to come now as we enter into worship and that you would bless pastor and the message that you've laid on his heart this morning, pray that you would bless all in attendance, that you would open our hearts, open our ears, incline our hearts to 